Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Back before Thanksgiving, we were in the book of Isaiah. We stopped after chapter 62. Tonight we'll be picking up in chapter 63. There are only four more chapters to the book of Isaiah. When we stopped, we left the northern tribes, the house of Israel, in the Assyrian captivity. And we left the house of Judah in the Babylonian captivity. But we've also seen repeatedly over and over again in the book of Isaiah, God's promise to restore and regather all 12 tribes and to give them a glorious future. And as I have said repeatedly, as we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, I know that what Isaiah says does not fit with so many theologies. It doesn't fit with amillennialism. It doesn't fit with covenantalism. It doesn't fit with church replacement theology. And yet, this is what it says. And so we have to concentrate on what it says, and we have to bring our thinking in line with what it actually says. And importantly, the things that Isaiah says over and over again about a future for Israel, those promises are never negated. There's no place in the Old Testament or the New where you find God say, well, never mind. All that stuff that I promised previously, I didn't mean Israel. I meant some other group of people, or I meant the church, or any of that. Instead, what you see are firm promises to the historic descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so yet again tonight, we're going to see that, but we're going to see another element of it tonight which is that Christ is going to be introduced as the Savior who is going to produce this glorious future for Israel. Because as I have said repeatedly, all salvation, all redemption in God's economy is always through Christ. We're not teaching two separate ways of salvation. We're always preaching one particular way of salvation, which is always through Christ, which is why Jesus is uh, designated as the one through whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Mm. And so, right away in chapter 63, we're going to see language that perfectly correlates with the book of Revelation. So it's just providential that at this moment, on Sundays, we're looking at the book of Revelation, and we're starting tonight in chapter 63, which finds its fulfillment, finds its satisfaction in the book of Revelation. So we'll be doing a little bit of flipping tonight as well. There is a song that we sang here at GCA a few times. It's a song that I actually learned up at Main Street in Lexington, Kentucky at the conference there each year. We used to sing a song called, What Manner of Man Is This? You might remember it. 
And there's a line in it that says, he was seen coming from Basra with the dyed garments on, which sounds like a very nice, very positive thing. It sounds like our Savior, Jesus, who is described all the way through the song, what manner of man is this, who hung upon the tree, what manner of man is this? And so it's all references to Jesus, and there's just this semi-cryptic phrase in there. He was seen coming from Basra with the dyed garments on. Chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah starts with, who is this that comes from Edom? Okay, so who are the Edomites? The Edomites are the Esauites, and they are the continual enemies of Israel. They are a thorn in Israel's side dating all the way back to Jacob and Esau. And so here comes someone from Edom. And in a moment, we're going to see that this someone is the Messiah himself. But when he's returning from Edom, his garment is stained with blood because he is returning from warfare. He's returning from a battle. He is returning from conquering the enemies of Israel. And that's what the first part of Isaiah 63 is about. Who is this that comes from Edom? By the way, a little play on words here. That word Edom also means red. And the dyed garments or the garments that are stained with blood are red. So a little play on words there. With garments of glowing colors from Basra. There's the line. He was seen coming from Basra with the dyed garments on. But Basra is a city in Edom. So the picture is there is this one who is returning from Basra in Edom, and his clothes are so covered in blood they look like they're stained red. This is the one who is majestic in his apparel who is marching in the greatness of his strength. And then that question is answered. It is I who speak in righteousness and am mighty to save. Well, that can only be Christ. Who else can that be? Now, in Isaiah's time, as Isaiah is writing this, it is most certainly a reference to God. God is the redeemer of Israel, the savior of Israel. He has identified himself that way several times in the book of Isaiah. But then we're going to see the fulfillment, like I said, in Revelation, and we're going to see that it is satisfied, it is fulfilled by Christ. So here again, we see an example of something that Isaiah has written about God, about Yahweh particularly, that is satisfied in Christ himself, another example of Christ being God. So from the beginning, who is this that is coming from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? The answer is, it is I who speak in righteousness, who am mighty to save. So now another question in verse 2. Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like one who treads out the wine press? If you tread out a wine press, 
in a vat of grapes, treading out the grapes to get the juice, to get the wine out of them, you're going to splash that. It's going to get all over you. It's going to stain your feet. It's going to stain your clothes. That's why you'd have to lift any kind of long garment and make sure that it didn't get dragged through the grapes because it would immediately dye the garment that you were wearing. And so the questioner asks, why is your apparel red? And why are your garments stained like one who treads out the wine press? And the answer in verse 3 is, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. And I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. Okay, now we're understanding the fierceness of the wrath of this one who is coming from Basra, who is saying, I have so stamped out my enemies that their lifeblood is what has stained the garments that I'm wearing. And it was so bad, it was like someone who was stomping out a wine press. And their blood spattered all over me until I am stained red. So keep your finger right there for a moment and go to Revelation 19 for a moment. I'm interested in verses 13 to about 15, but I'm going to start reading at verse 11 just so we understand who is being talked about here. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That sounds very much like what we just saw out of Isaiah. And who else can it be, the one who's called Faithful and True? Who is that? Christ. Christ, and in fact, this Sunday... As we're looking at the church at Philadelphia, one of the things that Christ is going to say about himself is that he is true, identifies himself as the one who is not only the truth, but that he himself is true. And so here he is called both faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head there are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written upon himself, which no man knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There's no question now about who we're talking about. This same John who wrote Revelation is the one who wrote the Gospel of John, which started out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that the Logos is identified as Christ himself. And we know at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when John sees him, his eyes are like a flame of fire. But on his head there are many crowns, many diadems. He rules over all kings. He rules over all nations. And he has a name that no one knows except he himself. And he's clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
someday we'll actually get to Revelation 19 on Sunday morning, and we'll see that these that are following him on white horses are us. That's the church. They've received their white robes at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But our captain who is leading us is dipped in blood. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that sound very familiar? It sounds very much like what we saw back here in Isaiah. So Isaiah saw it. Isaiah predicted it. The satisfaction, the fulfillment of it happens in Revelation 19. So 700 years before Jesus is even on the planet, and so far at least 2,700 years before the fulfillment of it, Isaiah describes Christ as the righteous one, the one who speaks in righteousness, who is also mighty to save. And the reason that his apparel is red is because his garments have been stained by the blood when he has trodden out the enemies of Israel. Now, this is really, really important because Edom is not an enemy of the church. Edom is the ancient enemy of Israel. And Isaiah is writing to Israel. And in a moment, he's going to name them by name. It's clearly and obviously Israel that, that Isaiah is talking to and talking about, which makes Christ the redeemer of Israel, which is exactly what he is called at his birth. And so this is very consistent testimony about who Christ is and what Christ came to the planet to do. And you can't brush it under the rug with theological tap dancing or theological theories. Christ is the one who is majestic in his apparel. He is marching in the greatness of his strength. It is he who speaks in righteousness and who is mighty to save. And the question, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads out the winepress? He answers it as, I have trodden the wine trough alone. The book of Revelation calls it the winepress of the wrath of God. So we're clearly talking here about Christ coming back in vengeance during a time of trouble. I'm arguing that this is a tribulation period. This is wrath of God stuff. This is day of the Lord stuff. When Christ comes back and conquers the enemies of Israel. Because his plan is then to regather Israel, all 12 tribes, and establish the kingdom and the glorious future that Isaiah has been promising them all the way through the book. And the transition from their rebellion over to their glorious future includes redemption, salvation, and the day of vengeance. Here, we'll let him say it. Verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples, there was no man with me. In other words, there's no humans helping me with this. I'm accomplishing this. And I also trod them, stomped them down in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath, which is why in the book of Revelation, it is called the winepress of the wrath of God. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart. Remember when Jesus was standing in the temple reading from the book of Isaiah, and we compared what Isaiah wrote to what Jesus said. And he said to his listeners there, this day is this reading fulfilled in your hearing. The prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled at the moment that he stood up and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. But we saw how he stopped in the middle of a sentence, just before the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because that was not fulfilled at the moment that he was reading it. That was yet to come. But here he is describing that day of vengeance. That day that he could not say was fulfilled then is still waiting to be fulfilled. The day of vengeance was in my heart. And then astoundingly, amazingly, wonderfully, uh, he then says, and my year of redemption has come. That's going to help us clear up a phrase that Jesus used in Luke 21, 28. Somebody look up Luke 21, 28 for a moment. Because this is Jesus saying, when all the things that are predicted in Luke 21, in Matthew 24, when all these things start coming to pass, then you know that this day of vengeance is right at the door. And then he says this, Luke 21, 28. You got it, Tom? Yeah. Okay. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I grew up hearing that phrase. It was very Gentilized, the way it was presented to me. When you see these things happen, look up. Your redemption draws near, the redemption of the church, the gathering of the church. But contextually, when Jesus said it in Luke, who was he talking to? Israel. He's talking to Israel at that time. There was no church yet. There were no Gentiles introduced into the church yet. And so he said to Israel, when you see all these things come to pass, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Now that would make sense to them because they would know Isaiah that there's a day of vengeance in my heart and my year of redemption has come. So when is this time of redemption for Israel? After the time of vengeance. When the time of vengeance comes, this time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again, the time that Jeremiah refers to as the day of Jacob's trouble, for the day of my vengeance is in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished. I was overwhelmed by it. And there was no one to uphold, apparently to uphold the righteousness of God, to uphold the standard of God. There was no man, no human, nobody in Israel that was standing for God. So what did Jesus do? Instead of saying, well, then I'm done with you. Well, then you're not a nation. Well, then you're rebels. Well, then you've broken my law. Well, then I'm finished with you, and I replace you with the church. Instead, here's Jesus' reply, so my own arm brought salvation to me. 
This is very consistent with what we know about the salvation that God proffers. He did it. He did it alone. He's God all by himself. And he did it because nobody else possibly could. But thank God he did. And here is Jesus saying, with no man's help, my own strength, my own arm brought salvation to me. I accomplished salvation. But importantly, in context, who did he bring to salvation? Israel. Israel. It's unavoidable. And my wrath upheld me. Interesting phrase again. He says, my own righteousness, my own standard, my own holiness. I upheld it all by myself. And part of my upholding my own righteousness was executing my own judgment and my own vengeance. Because God is so righteous and so holy that he will punish sin. And he's either going to punish it in your substitute or he's going to punish it and take that price from you. And he's not afraid to do it. Here he is coming from Basra in Edom and saying, I just returned from slaughtering all your enemies. And that's why my robe is red from their blood. It's not the way we think of Jesus. We think of him as meek and mild Jesus walking around with a lamb on his shoulders and but he is also the righteous judge, the righteous arm of God who is willing to dole out the vengeance and the wrath of God. And that is all part of his character and holiness and righteousness. Which makes us even happier to know that grace exists. Amen. Otherwise, every single one of us are falling under that wrath. And he's perfectly willing to dole it out. So then he describes it. Verse 6. And I trod down the people in my anger. And I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Christ describing the absolute slaughter of those in Edom who are the enemies of Israel because the day of Israel's redemption has finally come about. makes you wonder why in Revelation he needs the armies of heaven. I don't think we're there to fight. Obviously not. I, I think we're there the to observe. Are and his are red. Yeah. He does not need any help. We're, we're coming back to watch him set up his kingdom. Yeah. But my point again is, and, and I know I'm beating this to death, in Isaiah, which now is at least 2,700 years ago, there is a prediction of a time of trouble, a time of tribulation, a time of wrath, and Christ is the one who pours out this wrath. 92 to 96 AD, John gets the revelation and Christ affirms it yet again, pushes it out into the future. It's still something that has to happen because the Bible says it. And it doesn't just say it once. It says it twice in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it is Jesus himself who verifies it. So it's got to happen. But it also means that it is the redemption of Israel. And you can't avoid that. 
So then starting at verse 7, there is a plea to God. Remember, as I said earlier, that the tribes of Judah are in Babylon, and they feel like they've been essentially abandoned by God. Once upon a time, they were a great kingdom. Once upon a time, Solomon was their king. David was their king. Among the nations, they were known as the kingdom that you couldn't defeat because their God was more powerful than any other false gods of any other nations. And so they, they pour out this plea to God because of the situation that they're in. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel. Who's the subject? <laughs> Israel. It's, it's just as plain as day now. So Israel is scattered. Israel is out of their land. Jerusalem has fallen. The temple has fallen. And yet they're reminded of the great mercies of God. Isaiah says, I will make mention of the loving kindness of Yahweh and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. I really like the transition. I really like the juxtaposition between Christ pouring out the vengeance of God. But then earlier, as we read that, as we were describing it, even Steve kind of shook his head and went, yeah, because that's an image of Christ that is just mind-bogglingly vengeful and filled with blood and the wrath of God. And so Isaiah himself also says, now in the midst of that, I will also mention that God has been really good to us and his loving kindness has been poured out on us. And I'll make mention of the praises of God according to all that God has granted us and the goodness that he has given toward the house of Israel, which he granted them according to his compassion and according to the multitude of his loving kindness, because he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. There's another reference to God as the savior of Israel. Verse 9 in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Makes me think of Paul on the Damascus Road when Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And every time we read that, I say, you know, Saul wasn't really persecuting Christ. He was persecuting the church. And yet Jesus took it so personally that he said, well, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. That concept, that idea is all the way back here in Isaiah. Because when Israel was afflicted, so was God. Because Israel belonged to God and were his people and were his sons. And in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. 
in a minute he's going to describe the way that God was with them taking them out of Egypt taking them through the wilderness and in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire he was with them all the time his tabernacle was in their midst he was always present with them even in their affliction and he was there saving them redeeming them helping them and in his love and in his mercy he redeemed them and he lifted them and he carried them all the days of old so as they're looking back on their scripture the scripture that would have existed up until that point it was the story of God choosing Israel protecting Israel establishing Israel redeeming Israel taking Israel out of Egypt and so Isaiah is saying remember all that it's the same God you're dealing with today even though he is afflicting you right now even in your affliction he's afflicted he's not going to leave you there in his love and in his mercy he's redeemed them he brought them out of Egypt he took them through the Red Sea he lifted them he carried them all the days of old but they rebelled Steve if you would Steve one not the sequel Steve if you would look up Ephesians 430 for just a moment punch in the numbers on your iPad and yeah. look that up despite the fact that God did all this for them redeemed them brought them out of Egypt lifted them carried them through all the days of old verse 10 says but they rebelled and then part of their rebellion is described this way and grieved his Holy Spirit when we were teaching through the book of Ephesians which we've done a couple of times we've come across that phrase don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God and we've talked about what it meant to grieve the Holy Spirit of God but here Isaiah really hones in and identifies what grieves the Holy Spirit of God it is rebellion against God so read Ephesians 430 for us if you would and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption now Paul could just say that he could just drop that in that letter knowing that there was already a definition existing in the book of Isaiah rebellion against God grieves the Spirit of God I really like that it doesn't say the Spirit of God will leave you if you rebel instead what it says is the Spirit of God remains and is grieved by that behavior and so Old Testament New Testament we're told don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit therefore he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them how did he do that well exactly what I said when we began tonight the northern tribes are in the Assyrian captivity the southern tribes are in the Babylonian captivity God in his sovereignty accomplished that used those foreign armies to punish his people Israel and so he fought against them verse 11 and then his people remembered the days of old of Moses what happened in the days of Moses well they were in Egypt they were in slavery for 400 years and then Moses delivered them 40 years in the wilderness and they end up in the land of promise the land of milk and honey 
And so his people, Israel, remembered this. Remembered the days of old, of Moses, where he brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness. They did not stumble as the cattle which go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make for yourself a glorious name. And at that moment, the question before us is, and where is he? Now they're in captivity. Now they can't see their way clear to imagining that they're ever going to be back to their former glory. They're going to be back in their temple. They're going to be back to living in Jerusalem. They're going to have the kind of days they had in the days of Solomon, the days of David. They can't imagine such a thing. So even though he's been good to them and even though he took care of them in the time of Moses and delivered and redeemed them, now the question is, okay, that God, that God that loves us, that God who is our father, where is he now? And so, starting in verse 15, there is a prayer to that God, a plea to that God to look down from heaven and see the situation of his people. Look down from heaven and see thy glorious, holy habitation. Where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds? Where is the stirring of your heart and your compassion? They are restrained toward me. For thou art our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. In other words, we're all descendants of Abraham, but he's long gone, he's long dead. He doesn't know us. And here we are. Abraham knew the God who said to him, leave your father, leave your family, and I'm going to show you a land, and everywhere that your foot walks and everywhere that you can see, I'm going to give you all that land. It is yours and your descendants in perpetuity. And now here we are in bondage. Abraham doesn't know us. And then he says, Israel doesn't know us. He's talking about Jacob. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel does not recognize us. These were all members of the Abrahamic covenant, of the glory of God, of the promises of God. And they're so ashamed of the state that they're in now in their bondage, they say, our forefathers wouldn't even know us, wouldn't even recognize us. Thou O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer from of old is thy name. This, once again, is a principle that we see all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New, and we see it to this very day. God knows that the best way to drive his people to call out to him, to cry out to him, to depend on him, to have faith in him, to look back to him, the best way to do that is to strip them down and take everything away from them. And when they've got nothing left, they turn to God. And we've seen that time and time and time again throughout the Bible. And we've seen it in our own lives. I have often said, if God loves you, 
he'll chasten you. And just like the writer of Hebrews says, even though that chastening isn't pleasant for the moment, the end result of it is it produces that peaceable fruit of righteousness. And God knows that. He knows that the rebellion of Israel was also the result of the glory of Israel. He gave them all this glory and riches and land of milk and honey. And they became self-sufficient and started worshiping other gods and chasing foreign women. He's not going to lose them. He's not going to give up on them. And so what he does, again, out of grace and kindness, really, is he drives them to an end of themselves so that they will plead back to him and say, you're our father. You're our redeemer. And we know you've redeemed us in the past. We know the history that you have with us. And yet we wouldn't even be recognized by our forefathers. You've brought us so far down. Mm. Now, where are you? There they are looking for him again. Verse 17 says, in this remarkable, remarkable statement of sovereignty, why, O Lord, have you caused us to stray from your ways? <laughs> remarkable. Why, God, have you put us in this state by causing us to err from your ways. It's very much like Mrs. Job saying to Job, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Even in everything that he had been through, even as he was sitting on the ash heap, carving out his boils with a piece of broken pottery, Mrs. Job still recognized that it was God that did it. So curse God and die. She recognized that it was God's doing. And here Isaiah, the prophet of God, recognizes that the state they are currently in is a result of God's sovereign plan for them. That's the theology that, that Paul picks up in the New Testament and asks the question, you will say to me, how does God yet find fault, seeing how no one has resisted his will? Everybody did exactly what God wanted them to do. How can he then fault them? How can he blame them? How can he judge them for only doing what he caused them to do? And Paul's answer is, who are you? The thing that is made doesn't get to say to the thing that made it, why'd you do this? Why'd you make me like this? Mm. Same thing here. They're asking the question, why, O oh Lord, dost thou cause us to stray from thy ways and harden our hearts from fearing thee? Okay, there's an answer to the question. Do you know what the answer is? Because this was God's intention from the beginning so that he would then turn to the Gentiles. And Paul tells us that that hardening that came to Israel was a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and that God turned to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then all Israel will be saved. And so this is all part and parcel of God's divine plan for the people that belong to him so that everybody across the board is ultimately saved by grace through faith 
and nobody gets to argue their genealogy, and nobody gets to argue Abraham, and nobody gets to argue, well, I'm of Israel. I mean, that's what the Pharisees tried to argue to Jesus. We've never been in bondage to anyone. We're Abraham's seed. And so God is leveling the playing field so that nobody gets to say, there's something in me that's worth saving. There's something in me that caused God to turn his attention to me. Instead, everyone is going to be saved as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith. They're asking that same theological question. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing it this way? Why, O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh, dost thou cause us to stray from thy ways? Why do you harden our hearts from fearing thee? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people. Thy holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. We had the temple for a while. We worshiped you in the temple for a while. Now we're out of our homeland and the temple itself is destroyed. But we are the people you chose. We're the people you redeemed. We're the people you revealed yourself to. We are the holy people who possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have now trodden it down. And we have become like those over whom you never ruled. We've become like everybody else. Once upon a time, we were the people of Yahweh, the one and only living God. And now there's no distinction between us and our enemies. And in fact, our enemies have rule over us. We've become like those whom thou hast never ruled. Like those who were not called by your name. Now, that's the end of that chapter. We're going to pick up in chapter 64 next week. But if you were to just read that portion of chapter 63, it would be real easy to say, see, God abandoned them, and they know it, and they recognize it. God wants nothing more to do with them. You know, there's only three more chapters in the book of Isaiah. By the time you get to chapter 66, which we'll get to in just a few weeks, Chapter 66, verse 10 says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you that mourn over her. And then there's all these promises, all these promises of restoration and the glorious future that has been promised for them all the way through the book of Isaiah. So all we're seeing in chapter 63, outside of Christ returning from conquering the enemies of Israel. By the way, again, we're going to get to the book of Revelation, and we're going to see the, the Armageddon. We're going to see the blood flowing to the bridles of the horses. We're going to see Christ with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, destroying the enemies of Israel, all of which is prefigured here. Christ is going to defend Israel, his people, because God doesn't change his mind. Once he chooses a people, they are his, but he will correct them. He will instruct them. He will defend them. He will redeem them. But they're going to learn the hard way. Again, Old Testament, New Testament. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's a consistent way that God works. He doesn't lose his people. He teaches his people. He instructs his people. 
And then what you see is that instruction takes the form of being cast out of his beloved land, being cast out of his temple. The temple is destroyed, and they're in a state right now where they are praying to God and trying to remind God of all his mercies in the past or in the time of Moses and asking him, where are you? Do that for us yet again. And yet they end up saying that he's the Lord who has taken them through it. They resort back, even in their misery, they resort back to God's sovereignty and say, you're the one who is doing this. You're the Lord over everything, and you own us, and you're taking us through this. And Isaiah keeps saying, and this isn't the end for them. The end is glorious. So let's apply that for a moment. Life here in 2022, I think we could all agree, is just plain stupid. Mm -hmm. Everything about the world right now is absurd and ridiculous and upside down and sinful and depraved and we just look at it and say okay God where are you <laughs> you've told us what you're gonna do just do it the good news is consistently throughout the Bible he is the God who is willing to bring about this kind of chaotic state because it will drive his people to himself. And then he is their redeemer, and he will keep every single promise he ever made to Israel and to you. And that's really good news. And that's the God of the Bible. Three more chapters in Isaiah, and then we'll start on the book of Psalms. Any questions? To a large degree, God is just crushing your prideful sin because that's problem number one. So it's good that he should address that. Yeah. <laughs> and once you see that that's the plan of action, your first step should be to get on your knees and go, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go with that. I understand. That was the whole history of Israel. Yeah. Every time he delivered them, every time he gave them plenty took care of their enemies, got rid of the wild animals that would harm them. Every time he cared for them like that, they got raised up in pride, got fat and happy. The next generation comes along, forgets about God, forgets what God just did for their parents and grandparents, and then they would rebel and grieve his spirit again. So he would bring their enemies down on them and conquer them again and make them cry out to him. And then the cycle would start again. What we read tonight out of Isaiah is just another one of those cycles because we silly humans just don't learn. Break the cycle and get on your knees. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if we finally figured out that we should get on our knees before it gets bad? Good plan. But I'm certainly glad that sovereign God who loves us enough will bring about the situations, the troubles, the trials of this life that drive us back to himself. He doesn't give up on us. He teaches us. And I'm glad he does. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.